going through verse by verse. Uh, we took up chapter 1 where Paul was, uh, made his introductions. He talked about the gospel of Jesus, the good news of God concerning Jesus. And uh, he ended the first chapter by talking about uh, kind of showing a history of man's progression into sin. And uh, he ended the um, first chapter. Well, of course, he didn't write chapter and verses, but what we know of is the first chapter where the translators divided it with more than 20 indictments about man's uh, behavior and man's fall into sin. Chapter 2, he's going to talk about the judgment of God. But he's not talking about the judgment of God upon the world. He's talking about the judgment of God upon the church. Now, chapter 2 is tough for a lot of people because um, um, there's an idea, there's a modern-day notion that there is no judgment of God for the Christian. And, uh, and, and that doesn't, if, if that's true, then Paul sure missed it because Paul made some definite statements uh, to the contrary. I know that um, in what's identified, and I hate to use labels, but I don't know how to say it any other way for you to know what I'm talking about. Uh, in some of the grace teaching that's, uh, that's done today, the idea is God's just warm and fuzzy and, and that's all there is to God. But you need to understand where Paul's coming from Paul is identifying uh, to a church that he's never been to. He didn't start the church at Rome. He knows a lot of people that are there. He'll, uh, at the end of, the, chapter, end of the, uh, the letter, he identifies his personal knowledge of about 25 people that are there in different, different uh, positions and, and different, doing different works there in the, in the city of Rome and within the church. But Paul's never been to Rome before, or never been to the Roman church before. He's been to Rome, but never been to the, uh, to the church at Rome. Uh, at the time that he writes this letter, he's been in ministry for about 20, maybe 25 years. He's in the middle of his second missionary journey, so he certainly has received the revelation that, um, that God gave him that he calls his gospel. He'll call later on in chapter 2 uh, his gospel that the world will be judged by. And Paul didn't have any problem with reconciling the grace of God. He is the ultimate grace preacher. Everybody that that teaches grace nowadays uses Paul's statements, his scriptures, his his writings as the foundation for that grace teaching. But Paul didn't seem to have any problem reconciling the judgment of God with the grace of God. Now here's the the significance, kind of an overview. Here's the significance of the second chapter of Romans. And that is, He's identified very specifically and very clearly, and nobody argues with this, that the judgment or the wrath of God will be upon the unsaved. And it's not because God wants to judge anybody. In fact, uh, Isaiah twenty-eight twenty-one says that judgment is God's strange work. It's not something he enjoys, but it's part of who he is. Paul is identifying to us since God is a God of judgment. And whether you like it or not, whether you want to create a different picture of God in your mind or whatever, God is the God of judgment, which is the very reason that he sent Jesus. Because without Jesus and the shedding of Jesus' blood, that judgment would, be, would, would rightly be due us. There's no way to escape the judgment of God except through the blood of Jesus. But if God is a God of judgment, if he's going to judge the whole world, and he does, Romans 3.19 says God is the God of all, or the judge of all, excuse me, If God is going to judge everyone, saved and unsaved, then Paul goes to great lengths by the direction of the Holy Ghost to show us the principles whereby we can know how God acts, how we can know how God estimates man and how God will execute judgment. And that's what chapter 2 is all about. 
It's the, it's the means, it's the principles whereby God exacts judgment or executes judgment. Uh, you may recall that the Bible says that judgment should begin at the house of the Lord, the house of God. Well, if there's no judgment, then why should judgment start with us? These are the things that Paul is going to refer to. These are the things that Paul is going to talk about. So as I said, there were, there were more than 20 indictments in chapter 1 about the unsaved, those that have rejected God and God's plan. It says three different times that God gave them up or gave them over to certain things. And there's a, a downward spiral, a downward progression where man gets further and further and further into unrighteousness. Yet the Bible says, we saw in chapter 1, we'll see in chapter 2 tonight, that there's a knowledge on the inside of every man about God, the existence of God, and the fact that he is the creator. So in chapter 2, let me read the first three verses of the chapter, and then we'll start making some comments. Paul said, talking to the church, writing to the church, because, or joined to the downward spiral of man in chapter 1, he says, thou, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest yourself. For thou, for thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man? He's writing to Christians. He's saying, do you really think those of you that judge them which do such things as were identified in chapter 1 and doest the same that you shall escape the judgment of God? Now, we've got to answer some questions here, folks, because if Paul is saying that the church is subject to the judgment of God, we've got to find out what is that judgment. I don't know about you, but I want to know before I get there. I want to know so that I can prepare and avoid it as much of it as possible. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Paul writes something of this. And like I said, Paul is the ultimate grace preacher. And he doesn't have any problem reconciling this with the grace of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. Paul said... For we must all appear, well, let's back up to verse, uh, let's back up to verse 7. We like some of the preceding verses, so let's, uh, let's get the context. Paul said in verse 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We like to preach that one, don't we? Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We preach that, talking about man being spirit, soul, and body. Verse 9, wherefore we labor, because we are spirit, soul, and body, because we are supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent from the body, we may be accepted of him. For, verse 10, we must all, everybody say all. Now, who's he writing to? Is he writing to the world? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church at Corinth. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that which he has done, whether it be good or bad. The Bible says Christians are going to be judged for the deeds of their flesh. Turn with me to second, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul must have been having a bad day when he wrote this stuff, huh? Now, some people might say, well, that's not the Holy Ghost. Really? Or is it that we don't understand the entirety of God? See, folks, here's the reality. If God is a God of judgment, and he is, if God is a holy God, and he is, if sin cannot stand in the presence of God, and it cannot, then everybody 
is going to have to appear and stand before God on their own. That means you don't get to stand before God in the way that you want him to be. You get to stand before God as he is. Now, everything about what Paul has said in chapter 1, everything he's going to say in chapter 2, as well as everything else he writes, is intended and designed for the church to rely on the blood of Jesus and to walk, as we might say, as he said to the, to the Galatians, to walk in the spirit and not according to the flesh. That's his whole intent here. But now what we have to, to consider is, has the reputation of Rome precipitated the Roman church I'm talking about? Has it precipitated this direction from the Holy Ghost? Paul said that I've, I'm uh, proud of you because I've heard that your faith and love is spoken of throughout the world. Well, is that the only thing that's being spoken of? Is Paul writing these things because he knows the condition of the church? Or is the Holy Ghost just giving this for general doctrine for it to fit as it may or may not apply? It's so specific, I have to conclude or assume that Paul knows some things about the church. Now, it's interesting also, if that is the case, if Paul knows the condition of the church, if he knows the reputation that they have, which he seems to, he writes specifically to to things that they're doing. If that's the case, then what credibility or what right does Paul have, having never been to the Roman church, having not been the one to start the Roman church, what credibility does he have to correct them? What keeps the people that get this letter from blowing him off and just saying, well, he didn't know us. We don't know him. There's one and only one thing, and that is his reputation. At this point in time, Paul is known throughout the whole world as being one of the men that's turned the world upside down. So he says in first, in, uh, did I tell you to go to 1 Corinthians 4 yet? Okay, 1 Corinthians 4. Let's look at, um, well, let's start in verse 1. We'll read the context. He said, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards. He's talking about ministers. That's the stewards he's referring to. But this is true for everybody that's been given a charge by the Lord. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, Paul's talking about his own experience. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. He said, I don't care if you judge me. Now, what's the situation in the Corinthian church? Well, we know that Paul has written to the Corinthian church about the divisions that are among them. He said in just a few chapters before, he said, now, some of you are saying you're a Paul. Some of you are saying you're of Apollos. Others of you are saying that you're of of Cephas or Peter. In other words, the church is divided between preachers and or teachers that they like the best. There are divisions. There are sects. There are groups in the Corinthian church based on the teaching of the word of God. Those divisions were so severe that they turned away from the, the, the truth, which should have been the unity of the faith, of some of the teaching that he had given them because he did start the church at Corinth. He said to them, if I'm an apostle to anybody, it's an apostle to you. He said, you may have 10,000 teachers, but you only have one spiritual father, and that's me. He can't say that to the Romans. He's not their spiritual father. I want you to see that he handles things differently with the two letters that he writes. Paul doesn't stand up and say, you better listen to me or else. I know you. I, I was there when this thing started. I was there before you were there. He can't say that. He can say that to the Corinthians. 
and many other of the other churches that he wrote letters to. He can't say that to the Romans. So Paul said, but for me or with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. Why? Because they're judging him according to man's judgment. He says, I couldn't care less to be judged by man's judgment. In fact, I don't even judge my own self that way. Now, when he says, I don't judge myself, that does not mean he doesn't judge himself according to the word. He does. He's saying, I don't judge myself according to man's judgment. I don't compare myself to Peter. I don't compare myself to Apollos. I know what you say, he writes to the church. You say that, that Paul's letters are weighty, but when he gets there, he's weak and doesn't speak very well. I know what you're talking about. I know that Apollos is a better teacher than I am. He's a better orator than I am. I know that you guys judge me according to my physical appearance. Church history tells us that Paul was a short, stocky, bald-headed guy that would argue with a stop sign. I take great comfort in Paul's personality. So Paul says, for me, it's a very small thing that I be judged of you. It's a very small thing that I be judged by any man according to the judgment of man. I don't even judge myself according to that. That's not my measuring stick. Well, what is then? For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I let God judge me. How does God do that? Through the word. Are you with me? Verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. That tells us when judgment will take place. When the Lord comes. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsel of the hearts. Keep that phrase in mind. You're going to see something like that again. And will make manifest the counsel of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Now Paul is saying. He's speaking on the positive side of things. He's saying if you live like I do. And judge yourself according to the word. And live according to the truth of the word. In the, the case of the, the Corinthians. The truth that he had preached. In the case of the Romans. The truth that he's about to deliver to them. Then you don't have to worry about being judged. But that's not the situation in the church at Rome. That's not it. Back to chapter 2. Thinkest thou this, O man, that, thou, that judgest them that do these things and does the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Folks, you need to realize something, and this is just as straight up as you can get it, and that is you will have to answer for what you've done in this life. Now, the answering doesn't make the difference between heaven and hell. You made Jesus the Lord of your life just like they have. The ones that he's writing to. They made a life choice for Jesus. So that gets you into heaven. But from the time that you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you have a responsibility to your maker. That responsibility is to live according to the life of God that he imparted to you. I think the church nowadays is very, very, very casual. Too casual. About 1 John 1, 9. Oh, well, if I miss it, just 1 John 1, 9. Thank God for 1 John 1, 9. But God expects us to grow up. God expects us to quit stumbling over the same things, to take the truth of the word, renew our minds to the word, so that we stop stumbling over the same thing over and over and over again. Are you with me? Let me give you the seven principles. Well, uh, let me back up a little bit. I need to go a little bit further. The situation in the church at Rome is that there are two groups of people in the church, Christians, two groups of people that are judging other people 
according to the judgment of man. They're judging other people according to the judgment of the unsaved. In other words, they see people in the church doing unrighteous things, so they judge them, but they do the same things that they're judging others for doing. And here are the two groups or the two categories of people that are operating. One is the respectable Christians or the elites, and the other is the Jews, the religious folks. Now, Paul is going to address both. He uses the first 16 chapter or 16 verses of chapter 2 to write to the elites. He uses chapter uh, he uses verses 17 through 29 to talk to the religious ones. But everything about the second chapter is writing to those that are judging other people but condemning themselves through their judgment because they're guilty of the same stuff. In this, he gives seven principles for the judgment of God. You ready for them? Verse 2. We are sure that the judgment of God is, number one, according to the truth. Against them which commit such things. Verse 3 is interesting because he says, he asks again, he says, Thinkest thou this? The word thinkest is the word reason. Have you reasoned this way, O man, that judgest them which do such things and do the same things? That thou, this word thou is a real interesting word because it has a special emphasis that refers to self-conceit. He said, do you think if you're doing the same things you're judging for other, other people that you shall escape the judgment of God? Or, verse 4, despisest thou. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's this. Maybe you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. I want you to notice something, folks. It's not judgment that leads anybody to repentance. It's not preaching hellfire and brimstone that gets people saved. Now, there may be a few that you scare uh, out of hell or scare the hell out of, whichever may be appropriate. But it's the teaching of God's goodness. It's the good news of of God concerning Jesus' son. That's what gets people saved. But now notice the progression of God's goodness. It says, first of all, despisest thou the goodness. That means God's provision, his protection, and his kindness upon us. Even people, and now remember, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people that are doing the wrong things. He's talking to people that are walking according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. He said, do you despise the goodness of God, the provision, the fact that God is taking care of you even though you're doing the right thing? Or if you reject his goodness, then what comes next is his forbearance. He still doesn't exact judgment on you even though you deserve it. He continues to show goodness upon you. He continues to provide for you. He continues to protect you. But then when his forbearance is rejected, then the next thing is his long-suffering. God will go to the utmost to give people a chance to turn around. Because God's not into judgment, yet he is a holy God, and so therefore he is of necessity a God of judgment. Verse 5, here's the second principle. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up thyself wrath, unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Here's what this means. It means the second principle of God's judgment is that it's according to accumulated guilt. And here's the point. Except for the blood of Jesus applied every day in every situation for the rest of your life, there is guilt that's associated with us through the walking of the flesh. We're not talking about the unsaved. We're talking about for the Christian. There is guilt that's accumulated against us like 
drop by drop by drop by drop by drop for every day and every situation that we walk according to the flesh rather than the spirit. Folks, don't think that the blood of Jesus automatically covered everything. It covers everything for those that obey. The Bible says, Paul wrote and he says, some men's sins follow after them. Some men's sins go beforehand. Why would he say that? Because if you cover yourself in the blood of Jesus, if you do miss it and repent, then those sins have gone before and you'll never have to answer for those. The ones that follow after are the ones you didn't repent of that you get to answer for when you get there. Now, let me, let me make a statement here because whenever you talk judgment, and, and I can feel it already, the, the, the whole room's getting tight. When you talk to judgment of God, you've got to make a distinction, and Paul makes this distinction. He makes it, uh, we can't see it in the King James, but the distinction is made because of the words or uh, due to the words that he uses. Revelation chapter 20 talks about the great white throne judgment. How many of you have heard of that? That's not what he's talking about. The great white throne judgment is where the the books are open and everybody is judged according to their works, but it says the books are opened and and the, the names of everyone is searched for in the book of life. Well, you wouldn't have to search for your name if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. Your name's already there. There's no searching. See, you've already met Jesus. The way, that, uh, the way that the church avoids the judgment of God is to meet Jesus. The way the church avoids the judgment of God for individual sins following their salvation is to walk with Jesus. That shouldn't be a hard thing to do. But even less than 30 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead... The church has deteriorated to such a position that it looks much like the modern-day church today. We've got people that are operating as the elites or the respectable Christians. They think that they're uh, immune from the judgment of God because they're of a better class than the people that are doing wrong. Or they're of a better educational standard than the people that are doing wrong. And you've got to realize, folks, especially in Paul's day, there was a huge, huge gap between educated and uneducated. Huge gap. Much of the, the scriptures that people don't like about uh, women in the church and stuff like that has more to do with, uh, with culture and education or lack of education. It was an unheard of thing for a woman to have any education whatsoever. So the idea that a woman would lead the church is just a foreign concept. How would they have an education to even read? For example, in this case, how would a, the, a normal woman have an education enough to even read the letter that Paul wrote? Yet you find that God called many women. There are, there are uh, some 20 people in the New Testament letters written to the New Testament that are identified as apostles. Four of them are women. So it's not, an un, it's not, a, uh, it's not a, something that God forbids, but it certainly would be an unusual situation because how would somebody gain the education to be able to lead the rest of the group? So it's more of a cultural thing. It's not a gender thing. It's not God being against women or, or even the, the church being against women. It had more to do with an, an educational barrier than anything else. So there were great gaps between classes. There were great gaps in education, as I mentioned. There were great gaps as far as Jews and Gentiles were concerned. There were great gaps between Romans and Greeks, what we would call races or cultures. There were some races and some cultures that were highly, highly, highly favored above the others. And many of those that come from those selected or favored groups looked down on the rest of the world and thought, well, God made me this way, so he has something special for me. 
cares more for me than the rest of the people. These are the kinds of things that Paul's addressing. Now, the Jews, that's a different story. The Jews didn't think that they would ever be judged by God. They thought only the Gentile nations would be judged by God. And so Paul is having to address to them, don't think just because you're a Jew, don't think because God gave the, the law of Moses to you through your ancestors that that cuts any special ice with God either. No, it's all about Jesus. It's all about walking in the spirit, not according to the flesh, once you get into the family of God by making Jesus the Lord of your life. I want to make sure I cover this well enough for you to understand. Do you understand what I'm saying? Not at me or puff or something. Let me know what you're, what you're doing here. So the second thing he says, the second principle is in verse 5. The judgment of God is according to accumulated guilt. Folks, can I make a suggestion to you? Don't let anything store up. Walk in the Spirit, which means as soon as you've done something wrong, repent of it. That wipes the slate clean. We should be wiping the slate clean every day of our lives. Now, that doesn't mean you should sin every day and and have to be forgiven from it. But I guess maybe a better way to say it is we should keep a clean slate all of our lives, whether you miss it or not. The third principle is in verse 6. Well, let me back up to verse 5. There's some, some things that I didn't cover there. Um, but after thy hardness and impenitent, that means unrepentant heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath. Now, this, the wrath that's being spoken of here is not the wrath of God poured out on the world in the last days. This wrath means condemnation. It's the same word that's used over in... Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where it says, He that eateth and drinketh this cup, talking about the communion of the Lord, he that eateth and drinketh this cup unworthily in an unworthy manner with the wrong attitude toward the sacrifice of Jesus, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. That's the same word. It's not talking about wrath being sent to hell. It's talking about condemnation or judgment that you pay the price for here on the earth through your wrong actions. And in the church in Corinth's case, it said, For this cause not rightly discerning the Lord's body, were many weak and sickly among them. In other words, there was trouble in the flesh that was the result of disobedience to the truth. Folks, that's always been the case and it always will be the case. It's not that God brings the trouble. It's that our sin opens the door to the trouble. That's why we need to keep a clean slate. So it says, After thy hardness and unrepentant heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath, against the day of wrath... And revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, again, this is not talking about the great white throne judgment. It's talking about the day when God will judge our works and try them with fire. And they'll either burn up like wood, hay, and stubble, as Jesus used the example. Or they'll be purified like gold and come out even more precious. He's talking about works of the spirit versus works of the flesh. Verse 6. Who will render to every man, here's the third principle of God's judgment, According to his deeds. The word deeds is the word works. Now Martin Luther really didn't like when Paul talked about works. Because he's coming from a a position. A church doctrine. Church teaching. Where it's all about what you do and what you don't do. That gets you in a certain place with God. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about works. That are appropriate for those who are born again. And have the life of God within them. He's talking about works, meaning walking in the spirit. 
who will render to every man according to his deeds or works, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life, but unto them that are contentious. There's always been two groups of people, folks. There are two groups of people in the world, those that reject God, those that are haters of God, and those that yield to God. There are two groups of people in the church, those that accept the goodness of God and walk in the truth, and those that want to continue serving their flesh even though they've got the life of God within them. He's talking about the groups in the church. He said, To them that by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Here's the result, eternal life. He's not talking about getting into heaven. He's talking about all the blessings, heavenly and earthly, spiritual blessings of walking in the truth. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, here's their end result, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man. Look up those words and it means trouble and hurt. Now, is God the one doing that? Is that the judgment of God? No, it's not. The judgment of God is when we get to heaven and God will try our works with fire to determine whether they were natural or earthly works versus spiritual works, works of the flesh versus works of the spirit. But he's saying very simply this. Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost. He's saying if you don't walk in the word, there's going to be trouble ahead. It's just the way it is. Now, you can be smarter than Paul. And do your own thing and expect not to have any trouble. Or you can accept what's true and avoid the trouble. Because what Paul's telling you is true. He's saying this is how it works. Now, apparently, he needs to tell this to the Roman church because there is such division and contention among them. There is such a, uh, an air of judgment. Now, the Romans were the favored people in the world at that time. So if you were a citizen of Rome, especially a citizen of the city of Rome, because your family went back, you know, generations or whatever the case was, then you were really considered to be the upper class of the upper crust of society. And apparently some of the upper crust of society has worked its way into the church one way or another and are, are standing in judgment because of their position, because of their class and so forth, maybe education too, upon those who aren't worth as much. You know, the dishonorable ones, the ones that don't have anything. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying those of you that are judging other people but doing the same thing, don't think for a minute that you, you're going to escape. Don't think for a minute you won't have to answer for your wrongdoing just like the ones that you're judging. So he said, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. In other words, he's saying there's not a classification of Jew that, that, that will enable you to overcome the trouble that, that results for not walking in the Spirit. And among you Gentiles, I don't care if you're upper class or lower class, it all works the same for you too. What's he doing? He's trying to inspire them to obey the Word. He's trying to inspire them. Now, there's something else we need to consider about this church or church is. There's a bunch of house churches in, in Rome. We don't know that there's any one major gathering or main gathering in the, in the city. Like we have indication that there might have been in Jerusalem in the beginning. But, uh, but Rome is, uh, is a bunch of house churches. We don't know to what degree they have uh, information about Paul's gospel. 
apparently not enough so that he feels, uh, apparently they don't have enough because he feels compelled by the Holy Spirit to write them his doctrine. Yet the people that he writes about and says, say at the end of the letter and says, say hello to this one and that one and so forth. These are all people that came up in his ministry. These are all people that knew him. So they would have given secondhand the gospel of Jesus, the revelation that he had of Jesus. So they know something about what he's been, he's been teaching around the world. But he writes the letter to make sure that they have a, a, a document once and for all. Now, again, I think it's important for us to back up and realize that we're not reading this or studying this letter like we would if we were in the church at Rome. You realize that, don't you? If we came to church one day and the, and the, the leader, the pastor, whoever it was, stood up and said, hey, we just received a letter from Paul. They would read the letter from start to finish. They wouldn't stop and talk about what this means and who this is talking about and who this is talking to and stuff like that. They'd read it start to finish. I'm guessing at the end of the letter, especially as long as it is, they would have had some kind of either question and answer thing or, or gone back over certain parts. Maybe somebody would have spoken up and said, that earlier part where he was talking about the groups, about judging other people, what's that about? I don't know. But we're taking it apart piece by piece. And so it's going to be necessary for us to back up from time to time and reestablish the context. So he says there's trouble for those who won't walk in the word. But verse 10 Glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Why? Verse 11, here's the, what is this, the fourth principle of God's judgment. For there is no respect of persons with God. God will treat you the same no matter what class of society you're from. God will treat you the same no matter what race you are, what gender you are, what your educational status is. God will treat you the same based on obedience to his word. It doesn't matter if you're considered elite or respectable or if you're just the common folks. The word works the same for everybody. And notice what the result is for walking in the word. Verse 10 again, glory and honor. The word honor means dignity, specifically material well-being and peace. To every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The working good does not mean doing good works as the church world talks about it. Working good or doing good literally means to walk in the spirit. Obedience to the truth. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. In other words, it doesn't matter where you came from. Doesn't matter if you came from Judaism or if you're a Gentile. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're acquainted with the law of Moses or not. None of that makes any difference. What does make a difference? Keeping the word of God, the gospel of Jesus. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are justified before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Here's the fifth principle. Judgment is not based on knowledge, but upon obedience. Now, you need to know. The more you know, the more you're responsible for. But that should be good news unless we're trying to run a game on God and keep from acting on the word. Because the more of the word we know, the more of the word we can renew our mind to. And the more of the word we can walk in, the more of the blessings of God we can walk in and receive. But it's not based on knowledge. Now, this is important. I think it's important in our present day, but it's also important in their day because they thought that it was about education. They thought it was about knowledge. They thought it was about this upper class or upper strata 
that makes us better than the the little people in the church. And Paul's shooting that down. Now, again, we don't know if he knows these things are going on in the church or if the Holy Ghost is just hitting these people between the eyes. But this is the condition of the church at Rome. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be just or justified. For when the Gentiles, now notice he's talking about the law in general, not the law of Moses. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature things contained in the law. Now here he's talking about the law of Moses, the law. If the Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses do as a natural course the things that are contained in the law of Moses, these having not the law of Moses are a a law, general, a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law of Moses written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts. Notice the conscience and the thoughts are not the same thing. Conscience is a part of your spirit. It's the voice of your spirit. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Now, folks, I want you to notice something. Verses 13 through 15 are in parentheses. Let me skip over those for just a minute so we can make our comments. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned without the law, without law, not the law, but law, shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Verse 16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Verses 13, 14, 15 are just explaining how God made man. How did he make man? He made man to have a moral compass on the inside. In other words, he's saying that everyone's conscience, everyone, no matter what they claim, everyone's conscience, the voice of their spirit and their thoughts are in a constant dialogue within them about right and wrong. It means everybody knows what's right and everybody knows what's wrong by themselves without anybody having to tell them. Everybody knows murder is wrong. Everybody knows homosexuality is wrong. Everybody knows that abortion is murder. Everybody knows that. I don't care how much education you get or how much you try to explain this stuff away. The Bible says everybody's heart, everybody's spirit, everybody's literally their conscience, the voice of their spirit, everybody's conscience tells them what's right and what's wrong. It's the biggest waste of time to have uh, an argument with a sinner and tell them what's right and what's wrong. It's a total waste of time because they already know. Now, the Bible talks about people whose conscience are seared. In other words, you can get to the point where you don't hear the voice of your spirit anymore, but that doesn't mean you still don't know. You knew before you shut the voice off. Stop listening to it. Everybody knows right and wrong. That's what's so stupid about our political situation today. Everybody's trying to argue about what's right and what's wrong. And everybody's trying to come up with these these reasons and scientific facts or scientific ideas or theories or whatever the case is. Right and wrong doesn't change. And everybody on the inside of them knows what's right and wrong. And I think, just me, I think a lot of the people that argue the most against right versus wrong, that are, let me say it this way, that argue for wrong to be okay and right and acceptable, I think they know the most. Now, folks, there's only one way that you can accept this or or there's only one way you can look at this. You can have it, you can either accept it to be truth or reject it. But Paul is writing by the Holy Ghost. And if the Holy Ghost is saying this is how God made people, then this is how they're made. 
You might be thinking of somebody and, and trying to come up with an exception. If the Holy Ghost inspired this to be written, there is no exception. There is this constant battle on the inside of everybody between right and wrong. How do you overcome that dialogue? How do you get out of that argument? You renew your mind to the truth so that your thoughts aren't pulling you one way and the voice of your spirit pulling in a different direction. You get your thoughts to agree with the voice of your spirit so that there's no more argument. That's why it's to the Romans that Paul writes for them to renew their mind to the truth because this is the way God made us. Are you with me? Verse 16, here's the sixth principle. We read over it, but let me stop long enough to to mention it. Sixth principle about uh, God's judgment. And that is God judges according to the secrets of men's hearts. In other words, God doesn't just see the actions that we take. He sees why we took the actions that we, that we took. Nobody's going to have an excuse. God doesn't have to wait for somebody to testify for or against somebody. He's the witness. He's the judge. And he's the jury. Now, folks, Paul is identifying this is who God is. This may not be the God you want to stand before at the end, but this is who God is, and this is the God that you will stand before. So he says, in the day, in other words, you'll be judged in the day when God will judge the secrets of men. How? By Jesus Christ. Now he's not talking about individual choices between right and wrong, walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. He's talking about a life choice. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, folks, if you put together verse 2 with verse 16, Paul is identifying. Paul said in verse 2 that the judgment of God, the first principle of the judgment of God is that God judge according to the truth. Now, he says that he will judge judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. He's equating his gospel with the truth. Now, this is not an empty claim. Paul is claiming by the Holy Ghost, this was revealed to me by Jesus himself. This is the truth. You can like it or not. You can reject it or not. You can pick and choose which part of this fits in with your grace doctrine or whatever. But this is the truth, and this is what you'll be judged by. Stop and think about what that means. We think of, and most of our conversation tonight so far has been talking about walking in the Spirit. In other words, walking in love rather than walking in unforgiveness, for example. But think about how the church world picks and chooses the part of the gospel that they want. Well, we believe in forgiveness of sins, but we don't believe in that baptism of the Holy Ghost stuff. What about them? Look at how much of the, the, the charismatic part of the church world is looked down upon as lower class. See, it's the seminary graduates that believe in forgiveness of sins but not the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's the upper crust in their own thinking in the church world that looks down on those who just don't know better. It's exactly the same thing as Paul was dealing with. Maybe different, um, the groups may be different but for different reasons, but they're the same groups. It's the elite versus the common people. It's the religious people, the ones that think they know more about the word versus the ignorant ones. 
See, those of us that believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost in the minds of so much of the church world, we just haven't had the benefit of reading all the commentaries that the other folks have. Thank God we haven't. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. It's all about Jesus. He's bringing everybody back. And Paul's original intent is to talk about these things to identify these are the things you're going to be judged by. He knows that if there are people that are hearing the letter that are in these groups that are judging other people but not living right themselves, he knows he's just nailed them to the wall. So what does he do? He brings them back to Jesus. But whether they receive Jesus in, as far as their lifestyle is concerned, they've already been saved. But if they receive Jesus and the work of Jesus to, to be the, the guide for their lifestyle and the guide for their behavior or not, they're still going to stand before the God of judgment. It's just that standing before the God of judgment, the judge of all the world, is a whole lot easier when you're covered in the blood of Jesus. Because then he's your buddy and there's nothing for him to judge. That's what Paul's after. Now, verses 17 through 29 is Paul writing to the Jews. Here's the second group. We don't have Jews and Gentiles to deal with so much nowadays, but we do have those that think they're more knowledgeable in the word. Notice what makes the Jews better in their own estimation. I'll read through these pretty quick. Behold, thou art called a Jew and resteth or trusteth in the law and makest thy boast of God and knowest his will and approve the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law. In other words, you're smarter because you've got the law and been brought up in the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind and a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge in the truth and of the truth in the law. In other words, he's saying, you're the people that think you know more about anything else, more about God, more about his word, more about his instruction and his will and so forth than anybody else because of the law of Moses. Verse 21, thou therefore which teachest another, do you not teach yourself? Do you not, not use your knowledge of the word where your own life is concerned, or is it just to judge other people? You that preach a man should not steal, do you steal? Now remember back in the, um, uh, in the, earlier in the chapter, he was talking about people that judge other people that would do the same stuff because they're either rejecting the goodness of God or something along those lines. Here he says, does your, your great knowledge of the word not lead you to be a doer of the word first? Folks, I found something in my, my time in ministry. I found that most of the people that claim to be spokesmen for God rarely ever speak to him. What I mean by that is there are a lot of people in the church world that think they, and when I say the church world, I'm talking about in our groups, people that, are, that fancy themselves as doers of the word. There are a lot of people that rely on their knowledge of the word. They've got so many tapes and they've heard so many preachings and they know the best and the latest and all this other kind of stuff. But you can't speak for God unless you have a prayer life. At least you can't speak for him legitimately. Because knowledge of the word, Paul says and writes to the Romans, he said knowledge puffs up. But it's your prayer life that will soften you to the things of God. It's your prayer life that will create a desire in you to keep things right for you. I find a lot of people that have the answers. They don't have much of a relationship with God. That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about here. In Paul's day, it was about the Jews. In our, day, in our days, 
is about the word police. Verse 22, thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, do you commit sacrilege? One translation says, are you a temple robber? The implication there is, do you refuse to pay your tithes? You're against idolatry, but you're holding on to your money in such a degree that you've made an idol out of that. Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? Do you not realize that just saying that you keep the law or saying that other people should keep the law is not honoring God in and of itself? It's about obedience. It's not about knowledge. It's about obedience. Verse 24, notice this. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. The ones that are supposed to know the most. For circumcision verily profits if you keep the law. But if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not the uncircumcision which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter in circumcision does transgress the law? I know this is difficult, the circumcision, uncircumcision, and all that kind of stuff gets tough and tedious. But I'll, I'll help you out with it here in just a second. For Verse 28. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. Now, the word Jew here is talking about, in a general sense, he's not talking about a descendant of Abraham. He's talking about a true follower of God. One that has truly been entrusted with the revelation of of who we are in Christ and so forth. That's what he means by Jew here. He's not talking about you become, here's how you become a a proselyte to the Jewish religion. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. Now let me read this to you as as, um, um, William Newell wrote in one of his commentaries. Let me read something to you how he tries to modernize this. Instead of circumcision versus uncircumcision, he said the, the, um, the problem in, in the church in his day, this has been some time ago, but he said the problem in his day was church membership or denominationalism. He said that's what, those were the sects or the divisions in the church that uh, were prevalent in his day. So let me read some of these things. This is verses 17 through 19 in his paraphrase. If thou bearest the name of a Christian... And resteth on having the gospel and glory in God. And know his will and approve the things that are excellent. Being instructed out of the gospel. And are confident that thou yourself are a guide of the blind. Having in the gospel the form of knowledge and of the truth. Thou who gloriest in the gospel through thy disobedience to the gospel. Dishonorest thou not God? Are you not dishonoring to God by disobeying the gospel that you claim to hold fast to? The name of God is blasphemed among non-church members because of you. Church membership indeed profits if thou be an obeyer of the gospel. But if you be a refuser of the gospel walk, your church membership, quote unquote, is become non-church membership. If therefore a non-church member obey the gospel, shall not his non-church membership be reckoned for church membership in the eyes of God? And shall not non-church members, if they obey the gospel, judge you 
who with the letter and church membership are a refuser of a gospel walk? For he is not a Christian who is one outwardly or with outward show alone. Nor is that church membership which is outward in the flesh. You're not a true member of the church of God just because you've got a membership role on on somebody's membership rolls. But he is a Christian who is one inwardly. And church membership is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. You see what he's saying? He's saying this idea that you know more than others and you have a, a greater revelation, quote unquote, of the truth does no good unless you're living a lifestyle that lines up with it. James said the same thing. He said, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, he's saying, I live what I preach. I'm not just standing around talking about what other people ought to do. I live it. We got a lot of pretenders in the church world. We got a lot of pretenders that where it comes to walking by faith. They say the right things, but they're not really walking in it. Brother Hagin used to say, you only know the word that you're living. You can claim to have knowledge of things, but you only really know the word that you're living in your life. I think that's true in every case, folks. We don't need to, there's no judgment of God that we need to be afraid of as long as we're walking in fellowship with the Lord. Now, what that means is we're ever ready to repent and make corrections along the way. Yeah, but what if it doesn't look like it to somebody else? That's what Paul said for me. It's a small thing to be judged by you or judged of any other man's judgment because I walk according to the truth of the gospel that's been revealed to me. That's the way we all should be. Walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We live a life walking in the spirit and when the time comes for the day of judgment, as Paul talks about for the church, it'll be a day of rewards for us because our works will be tried by fire and found to be eternal works because we put the things of God, we put the word of God, and we put the spiritual things before things of the flesh. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to walk in the spirit. Father, you've entrusted to us a great knowledge of your truth, a great knowledge of the gospel of Jesus. We recognize, Father, that we will be judged according to that gospel, and we welcome that. Judge us, Father, according to the integrity of our heart. Quicken us according to your word and according to your spirit. Lord, adjustments that need to be made, we thank you that the Holy Ghost brings us under conviction. We know that every man is blind to his own sins except for the conviction of the Holy Ghost. So we welcome the conviction of the Spirit, not because of condemnation or judgment, a desire for judgment on your part, Father, but you desire for us to develop the character and the nature of Jesus here in the earth. So we thank you, Father, for revealing to us those things that need to be changed, revealing to us attitudes, wrong attitudes that need to be corrected. Father, if we've done others wrong, help us to make that right. Let us be a people through whom the name of Jesus is glorified instead of blasphemed because of our lifestyle, because of our works, spiritual works, instead of works of the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.